This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. So about a week or so ago, we had Brad Clark on the program. And Brad, of course, is a former uh, Ontario cabinet minister and Hamilton City Councilor, uh, now consultant. And uh, he was uh, one of the main authors of a report about the rental housing pro- uh, concerns here in the city of Hamilton. Uh, among many recommendations that uh, his report talked about was uh, Hamilton abandoning the idea of licensing uh, rental housing units. Uh, it's been something that city council has been talking about for the longest time, and it's one of many problems to do with the rental housing stock. Uh, joining us to talk about what council may need to do here and what options are available to them is Chad Collins, the counselor for Ward 5. Uh, Chad, first of all, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. You have been intimately involved in this file for probably as long as you've been on city council dealing with housing stock and rental housing, uh, the condition of the the number of units available and stuff like that. Maybe before we get into some of the nuts and bolts, a quick overview on what you thought of uh, of Brad Clark's report here and his uh, his recommendations. Well, it was very comprehensive, and um, Brad certainly did his research, as uh, he's known to do. And so his presentation was a good one. In the gallery, um, there was a, a contingent there, I think, uh, from, from uh, property owners who are landlords who were interested to hear Brad's presentation. And it was a mix um, of, um, I think, reviews from council in terms of uh, how that report was accepted. And it has been formally uh, passed along to our rental housing uh, subcommittee that we have. And, um, there, and as you just stated, Bill, there's a long history here in terms of you know, where we've been with investi- investigating the possibility and the option related to, to, to licensing rental units in the city of Hamilton. And, and I sat on, um, not too long ago, a subcommittee with uh, the late Councillor Morelli and former Councillor McCaddy, wherein we had uh, several days of presentations from stakeholders, not just landlords who had strong opinions as it relates to licensing, so we heard from tenants, we heard from um, advocates for tenants, we heard from not-for-profits who came forward and, and gave us their views. And, and to be clear, the three of us um, who heard those presentations and were contemplating licensing at the time were all at the table for different reasons. <clears throat> our, our, obviously, our common objective was to improve uh, rental housing stock here in the city. But for counselor, former Councillor McCaddy, it was an issue of student housing. And so, you know, Bill, that even prior to his um, time on council, going back to, to Mary Kiss's um, time and tenure on, on council and, and former chairman Cook, who represented Ward 1, student housing has long been an issue in Westdale and around McMaster neighborhoods. And so... Yeah, and it, it's even bigger now. Back in those days, it was only around the university campus itself. It's spread right across the west end of the city, up on the mountain, downtown, everywhere now. Absolutely. Anywhere that there's a, a higher learning institution, you know, there's student housing and there's baggage that comes with student housing. So for Councillor McCaddy, he was at the table relaying his concerns about, you know, how do we get a hold of the property standards issues of people not cutting the grass, absentee landlords, you know, letting their properties um, really fall into disrepair. And from a safety perspective, you know, and we still have this situation today, we have 10, 15, you know, or more students living in a home that was designed um, for a single family unit. And and um, and so that those were the concerns brought to the table by Councillor McCaddy. For Councillor Morelli, it was a different thing. His housing stock, he has a lot of um, older homes that have been chopped up into apartments. Again, you know, older homes that might be a century old were built for, for a, a family unit, um, have been broken into apartments in many, in, in many instances illegally. So they haven't gone through the necessary zoning regulations. They haven't been inspected by the fire department. And so for Councillor Morelli, he was there representing neighbourhoods who had concern about the proliferation of illegal apartment units in those older homes, um, you know, specifically in the St. Clair area and, and elsewhere. And for me, I was at the table 
because I have, a, uh, you know, the, the most high-rise buildings outside of the downtown. Uh, I could point to s- several neighbourhoods, uh, Quigley, Riverdale, other areas. And, and my concern for my constituents is that we have units within those buildings that are 40 or 50 years old that were falling into disrepair. And even with the most proactive outreach, um, we couldn't find our way into those units. And so licensing for the three of us, uh, meant something different, but all with the common ob- objective of trying to improve housing stock. And and what we heard, and and I think we'll hear the committee that's in in uh, that's uh, in place now will probably hear the same from landlords when it's debated. Uh, what we heard from landlords is that while there may be a, an element of illegal housing stock out there, um, you the city should use the, its existing tools that it has, like the property standards bylaw, to crack down on those landlords who are the bad apples. And, and there's problems with that. Um, it's a it's a reactive process, as you know, Bill. So it takes someone to pick up the phone to say that, you know, something in my unit or my building or the home that I live in um, needs repair um, or an inspection. And oftentimes, depending on, you know, who that person is, um, there could be a language barrier. So there are many instances of people who arrive in the city who, who do not know their rights because they're new to the country. Um, we run into barriers. There are language barriers. So for as much as we send information out to people to inform them of, of their rights uh, that that message uh, can be lost because it's you know for most times it's it's in english and and certainly there's the whole issue of people coming from places who may not understand their rights and fear for reprisal it that um, you know if they complain that they're going to be kicked out and so they just rather live with a deficient situation and 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 not complain and uh, and so those are the issues that um, you know we we were we were faced with and and housing advocates came out to say, look, if you crack down on landlords who have illegal units, you're going to displace hundreds, maybe thousands of people locally. And so there you have it. It's it's the issue of, um, you know, displacing people who are in illegal units um, versus safety. And, um, you know, if we, there are all too many instances, not just here in Hamilton, uh, but elsewhere, of people living in substandard living conditions where there's a fire or other incident. And, uh, you know, it leads to um, harm to individuals, or in some cases, death. And, and so, you know, that's, that's the situation we're in. Licensing would allow the municipality not just to wait for someone to call, but we'd be able to proactively schedule visits per provincial uh, legislation that uh, as long as there's advance notice, you know, we'd have the right to get into a home or an apartment unit. And we'd be able to, you know, fully understand, you know, what deficiencies exist and the health department or the fire department or the building department would be able to go in with scheduled with um, scheduled uh, inspections and ensure that whatever unit someone's living in is a safe unit. And we'd be able to force the landlord to undertake the necessary repairs. All right, let's talk and, about that process, uh, the way it is mm-hmm. now and the way you'd like to see it be. Uh, and, and by the way, I understand where you guys are coming from, uh, because obviously this is a, a, an ongoing problem, as you've already described. And, mm-hmm. and basically, whatever subcommittee you have, Chad, and whatever reports you have in front of you, uh, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Because Correct. if you say, well, we think we might go down this road, you're yep. going to fill the council chambers with people that say, no, 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 don't do that. You're, you're going right. to put landlords out of business. You're going to put people out on the street. So this is the stuff that you're constantly faced with. But uh, the, the the concern here, and I, I, we talked about this with Brad Clark last week when he was on talking about the report, mm-hmm. was it's all well and good to say, okay, fine, we don't need the license. But if not, then how are you going to get eyes on some of these potential problems? That's it. There's no legal way we can get into the home to do the, the inspections without the permission of the tenant uh, and, in some cases, the landlord. So, it's, But that raises it, the question, who's going to pay for it then? 
Yeah, and that's right. They're proactive. And, and so what we gravitated to, and I, I neglected to tell this part of the story, when, you know, we, here we had a situation where we had a lineup in the council chambers of landlords, obviously, you know, saying it's not me, I'm not the one that you should be concerned about, but there are in, in, bad apples in the industry and you should be going after them with the existing tools, so don't license. Then we had housing advocates in front of us saying, you know, we're, we understand that there are deficient properties and we can give clear examples, uh, you know, in the past of, as to where they are and the addresses usually are the same. But we don't want you to license because it's going to force people onto the street. So the committee members are looking around at each other saying, well, who are we doing this for? We have housing advocates who don't want it. We have the landlords who don't want it. So we, we adopted at the time, and it, it's worked fairly well. We have a, a proactive inspection process, and it's, it's a higher level of education. So the department has um, developed brochures that they hand out ahead of schedule. So if I use an apartment building as an example, they will send brochures to every single unit in the apartment. Um, stating, you know, here's when we plan to visit your building. Could be within a week or two weeks' time. Um, if you'd like us to to um, schedule, if you'd like to schedule a visit when we arrive, then uh, let us know and and we'll be in. And, and that uh, brochure is in several languages, and so there are, you know, there's the opportunity there for someone to call in and and with the assistance of a translator. And so that those proactive property inspections are taking place across the city with all forms of housing stock. It's happening with apartment buildings. It's happening with, uh, you know, old Victorian homes that have been broken up into apartments, and it's also happening in the student housing area. Um, but, it, 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 again, it relies on those individuals to say, come on into my unit. I welcome, you know, your inspection. And, um, and so there's still some apprehension from tenants, uh, you know, in terms of will there, will there be repercussions? Will, will their landlord find out that they've allowed the city in, especially if there are orders that follow that force them to make and undertake repairs, and, and that means spending money. Um, you know, we still have a segment of the population that is unsure about their, their rights as tenants and, and, you know, what the landlord is required to do under the law as it relates to property standards. So it, it's a big education process that, if you want to call it, Bill, that hybrid system is better than the older system that we have, but certainly not as good as a licensing system that would clearly allow us into units, um, to more units and require more repairs and, and certainly would improve a housing stock that in Hamilton is much older than other communities because of the age of our city. And, you know, we talked about that with Brad Clark uh, and about his report, and I know he touches on that in his report. Mm-hmm. And and the reality is, and I know you know this, but just to remind our listeners, there are safeguards in place for tenants, uh, both mm-hmm. municipally and provincially. But I would guarantee you, Chad, that probably 95% of the people that live in rental units don't know that. Mm-hmm. That's right. And and So that's, that's, heard, that's where yeah. the fear comes from. They don't think yeah. they have anybody that has their back. That's right. And, and we've seen all kinds of examples in the local media over the last couple of years in terms of the gentrification that's occurring in the city, uh, rising rents and, um, you know, landlords applying for above the guideline increases and tenants have a lot of questions. You know, uh, what, are they allowed to increase my rent beyond what the annual almost rate of inflation is? And that's historically what, you know, tenants have experienced. But here in Hamilton in the last five to 10 years, we've seen Major, we've seen major properties in terms of when I say major, we see large properties with a number of units that have sold, and the new owner is anxious to undertake repairs, and those repairs are being done on the backs of those people who live there. And I could give clear examples on Quigley Road in the Tyndale area, where the owner has bought four properties, uh, towns, and, and a large apartment. They've undertaken, they've spent millions of dollars, and now they've applied, you know, for a uh, five, six, seven percent increase uh, above the two percent that tenants are used to. And, and so there's a lot of questions from tenants in terms of what my rights are. And, and I think that's a key part for the city and role for the city to play in terms of 
helping, uh, and there are a lot of organizations out there that try to do this, but the city can play a key role in terms of educating tenants, in terms of what their rights are, and, uh, you know, who to turn to when they have questions, and who to turn to when they want, uh, you know, official inspections or some other um, interaction with government agency. How do you, we've got about two minutes left here. Boy, there's mm-hmm. so much more to cover on this. Uh, but the conversions that you talked about, some people call them granny flats. The the provincial legislation has been changed on that. Actually, it's a, it's a little more uh, allowable now than it was, say, mm-hmm. say 10 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're starting to see a proliferation of these now. But a lot of them, uh, as you know, uh, are not going through proper process. In other words, they don't get building permits. They don't inform the city mm-hmm. that they're going to be doing this. And the concern, of course, is the quality of the workmanship. Is the wiring done properly? You know, what about right. health and safety standards? Yeah. And on and on like this. How can you inspect those situations where a lot of the time you don't even know that they exist? Well, and, that, and that's an issue. It's a, great, it's a great issue you've highlighted there, Bill. And that's part of Brad's presentation was, you know, we have a lot of illegal units, and they haven't gone through the appropriate process. So, you know, there were, there's references in Brad's report that talks about an amnesty. It talks about, um, you know, looking at the fee structure and maybe not charging landlords um, talks about uh, expediting the process for these people but you know there's clearly process in place whether it's through committee of adjustment depending on what they're asking for or rezoning depending on how many units that they, they have that are illegal and and there's a consul- public consultation for that so I, I've always been hesitant to say well we're going to green light you through an expedited process and that may not involve your neighbors and to be clear there you know there are some instances where these illegal units just don't make sense you know, if you if you have a, a home that can really only accommodate four units and someone has eight, nine, or ten, then you know, then then we've got a we're at a crossroads and and the legislation reigns supreme. So I, I'm not I'm not on for you know cutting corners to allow people to keep their units. Um, there's clearly a process in place that should have been taken advantage of in the first place when those units were created. And so there's lots of room for discussion. Um, I, I think we're council by and large, um, maybe save and accept for a few, have said we have a, we're keeping an open mind, and we're always looking to improve that hybrid situation that I've talked about. And licensing, I think, will remain on the agenda and, and as a discussion item for I think uh, several years to come. It's a very complex problem, but a critical problem, obviously, for the city, and it's it's a citywide problem at this stage too. Chad, thanks so much for the uh, the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Chad Collins, the uh, city councilor, of course, for Ward 5, who has been working on the uh, housing and rental housing file for quite some time. Uh, Brad Clark's report was available. I think it's still up on our webpage. It was put up there a week or so ago, but uh, it's interesting reading. And uh, it'll be interesting to see just how the city comes back and responds to this, because there, it's not just a student housing problem now. It's a conversion problem. It's a, it's a, a, a financial problem. And if they do waive the licensing fee and the inspection fee, well, you got to ask yourself, where's the money going to come from? Yeah, that's right. Look in the mirror. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We know, of course, that there's a race on right now to be the new leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. There are three. It looks like that's all that's going to be at this stage. One of them is Pauline Mulroon- Caroline Mulroney, I'm sorry. And uh, she, of course, is the daughter of former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. Will the name be an asset or a liability as uh, as they go forward into this campaign? It's an interesting question. A lot of it has to do, of course, with the legacy of Brian Mulroney, and that may be changing in the, uh, the last little while, especially the last couple of years. Tim Harper writes about it today, a freelance writer and editor. His uh, story appears in the Toronto Star. 
Uh, brace yulself for the return of Brian Mulroney and his legacy. Uh, brace yourself for Tim Harper. He's about to join us here on the Bill Kelly Show. <laughs> How are you doing this morning, Tim? I'm good, Bill. How are you? Good, good. Uh, let's, let's talk about this. I'm always intrigued by uh, uh, people who sometimes leave public office uh, with their tails between their legs, and not too long after that, in Milroney's case, obviously a few years after that, uh, the, 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 the grime comes off their legacy, and it's, uh, you know what, he wasn't so bad after all. Well, time uh, usually has that kind of effect on, uh, on legacies. Uh, you're right, uh, I agree. Put a little distance in there and things look a little bit better. Um, and it often happens uh, when uh, a former government is being compared to uh, a, a, a government that's in office at the time. Uh, just as an aside, the the, uh, the most fascinating uh, one happening right now is I saw some uh, polling numbers that made uh, <clears throat> George W. Bush look like a uh, a god. Uh, now that uh, people are looking at Donald Trump, and and I of course worked in Washington during the Bush years, and I can tell you how unpopular he was at the time. So sometimes well, did, did you ever see the rebuttal to that? You see Will Ferrell on Saturday Night Live a week or so ago? I did. Where he, he said, "Just remind, I was a bad president." <laughs> hilarious. So uh, sometimes it doesn't take uh, too long. It depends who's in office. And I think what happened uh, over the years with Mulroney. Look, you and I both recall at um, at one point he looked um, uh, to a lot of Canadians as rather uh, obsequious to uh, U.S. presidents uh, Bush, the uh, the father, obviously before that Ronald Reagan. But I think in the passage of time, when history looks back now. Um, we're seeing somebody who actually used personal um, relationships uh, probably to the benefit of Canada. And Mulroney was not shy about pointing that out when he was feuding with Stephen Harper about uh, Harper's um, uh, rather frosty relations with Barack Obama. Um, that last Harper uh, mandate when they were gutting environmental regulations, you went back and looked what uh, Mulroney did, and there was actually a bit of a tinge of green uh, to that um, uh, to the the, the Mulroney well, wasn't wasn't Mulroney declared to be the best environmental prime minister in, in in Canada's history? He was, and we all laughed, of course. Um, but when you look back at it, and then and you know through the value of, uh, of comparison, you look at through that lens. Uh, I remember sitting down with his former uh, uh, fisheries minister, uh, Tom Sidden, who uh, delivered a full throated defense of um, some of the protection of water. Uh, legislation and so on that Mulroney brought in. So, you know, there, there's another example. When you look back, the legacy doesn't look that bad. So without going through a laundry list here, I guess the point I would make is that enough time has passed. Um, well, let me, let me just digress for a second. I guess the most important one now is that, of course, when the free trade agreement exactly, came in, yeah. uh, it split the country. And Mulroney was, uh, from the center-left, uh, seen as a sellout. He was selling out Canadian interests to... Uh, to the U.S. and we all remember the uh, the divisive and the highly emotional 1988 free trade election. Uh, NAFTA's never been more popular now that it's under attack from uh, Donald Trump south of the border. Uh, Mulroney has been enlisted by Justin Trudeau to help on the NAFTA talks as something of a, a Trump whisperer, and he delivered quite a, a vintage Mulroney performance at a congressional hearing uh, just uh, last week, I believe, uh, defending mm -hmm. uh, the free trade uh, during. Um, an appearance in Washington. Of course, there's also the question of the uh, couple hundred thousand dollars passed in envelopes from Carl Heinz Schreiber. Uh, and I can tell you the man is still polarizing. If you want to look at my email today, when you write about Brian Mulroney, you realize that, you know, through the passage of time, some of the legacy looks better. 
But uh, he's uh, still a very polarizing figure in this province. But one of the reasons why, and I think you and I talked about this back during the time of those those uh, hearings with Carl Heinz Schreiber, the, the, the parliamentary committee that went into investigating that, uh, was that was the conservatives themselves that pretty much threw Mulroney under the bus for reasons I, I, I'm not so sure a lot of people even understand. But Stephen Harper declared that Mulroney was persona non grata within the party, and and they just bought yes. into that. Yeah, and Harper did a good job of. Uh, uh, ripping that caucus apart because there were uh, Mulroney loyalists in that caucus uh, from the uh, the former progressive conservative um, uh, base, uh, but of course there were uh, a lot of reformers in that caucus, um, and they kind of split along those lines. The the we fast forward now a few years later after that uh, edict from Harper, which actually backfired on him, but uh, you look at. Um, uh, Lisa Raitt, who's the uh, very high-profile uh, conservative MP and the deputy leader, was the one um, walking Caroline Mulroney out into the uh, into the public to introduce her in a very saccharine um, uh, town hall Q and A the other night. Mm-hmm. Peter Van Loan, who was a former Har- uh, Harper House leader, he was a bulldog uh, for Harper initially. Total bulldog for Harper, um, uh, a, a real partisan scrapper. Uh, he is advising Caroline uh, Mulroney in that riding in uh, Simcoe, uh, where uh, uh, Van Loan holds it federally. So uh, you've got former, um, uh, very prominent former uh, Harper ministers who uh, are now involved very much in the resurrection of uh, the Mulroney name and the candidacy, candidacy of uh, Caroline Mulroney. It's it's interesting to see the dynamic when this goes on and, and the way that they've come into the fold. And, and I, I saw the uh, the Lisa Wright uh, interview, and I use the term loosely, uh, yep. with uh, with Mulroney. Uh, clearly, uh, she's if she's inherited her father's political chops, she's not displaying it yet. I mean, the, an awful lot of talking points here, and uh, it's uh, you know she's got to understand that she's getting into with some pretty tough characters here. Christine Elliott is a veteran. I get that. Uh, Doug Ford is is a Ford, and we don't see need to say any more about that. But as you've articulated in the past, uh, whether you love her or hate her, whoever wins this thing is going to have a formidable opponent in Kathleen Wynne. And uh, the question I'm hearing from conservatives who are looking at this race right now is they're not sure that Mulroney's up to it. Well, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, can you foresee, really, Tim, if there were, for instance, a leaders' debate? With uh, with Caroline Mulroney and Kathleen Wynne, you're not going to see you had a choice, madam. Uh, you know, as, as as her dad did to to John Turner, and basically deflated Turner's campaign. It's hard to say, and I I will agree with you. Uh, obviously, uh, at least not yet, anyway. Well, at least not yet. Premier of Ontario is obviously not an entry level uh, position, uh, but these are very strange times down at Queens Park. Yeah. Can I? I I honestly don't know what to tell you. Um, I saw the. Um, um, that uh, thirty-minute love-in with Lisa Raid, and and you know that's that's how they wanted it to be, and uh, that's what they got. Uh, I didn't hear uh, hardly anything about policy. This was an introducing uh, Caroline Mulroney uh, event. Um, she, to me, she seems smooth, but I mean, it's inconceivable to me that you could have messed that up when you're getting friendly questions like that. So I don't know how the woman is going to perform. Um, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't write her off, though. I, she oh no, a, no! She has a profile, uh, Mulroney name notwithstanding, uh, that um, that the party really should be attracted to. And uh, you know, and I'm just speculating here, but I think Kathleen Wynne, uh, I would think, would much rather have run against Patrick Brown than perhaps somebody like Caroline Mulroney. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, we're going to have to wait and see. She may soar, 
or she may do a face plant because um, you know when she gets out there uh, on her own with a uh, with the uh, the training wheels off, it's going to be a tough uh, slog. And you know, I've had people compare her to you know Trudeau and the legacy, other dynastic um, uh, political families, but. Justin Trudeau had cut his teeth. He won a tough nomination battle. He uh, beat a, an entrenched um, uh, incumbent from the block in Papineau. He was a two-term MP. He knew his way around the House. Um, Caroline Mulroney has is, is never had a seat in Queen's Park. So this it's quite remarkable about what, what we're looking at right now. Tim, is it possible that part of the pushback against uh, Mulroney at this stage, Caroline, I mean, is, is that last name, is the family dynasty aspect? Because there's always going to be... Uh, those that are going to vilify people. It happened with Trudeau. It certainly happened. Sure. It's happening with Mulroney. Uh, it happened south of the border. And you can love them or hate them, but the reality is, is the Trudeau name still has a lot of cachet in Canadian politics. It, we'll find out if the Mulroney name still does, just as the Bush name and the Clinton name. And as we saw just a couple of weeks ago, the Kennedy name is still uh, alive and well in, in U.S. politics. They, they exist, whether you like them or not. But there's a limit, right? Because uh, the, the Clinton dynasty, I think, hurt. Uh, Hillary Clinton and the the Bush dynastic legacy certainly hurt Jeb Bush. Yeah. So uh, it it doesn't go on forever. Um, so whether the the name will will help or hurt, I I don't know that Canadians are are big fans of uh, political dynasties. But you know, the I'll just say this: the Ontario PCs better be careful before they uh, they are branded as um, you know uh, three leadership candidates who are uh, a, a daughter, a wife, and a, and a brother. Uh, they, they all come. They all come from uh, legacy political families, either through marriage or birth or uh, what have you. So there's actually nobody standing for the leader of this party who doesn't come from some kind of legacy or some kind of uh, political dynasty. And it wasn't just Rob Ford for Doug. His father was, of course, a long time. Uh, and, and they'd be crazy not to play that card. Well, you can't run from it. And the, no. the interesting thing is how um, uh, that, that um, Q&A with Lisa Raid on Monday that we both saw it, uh, I, I'm sure many of your listeners probably don't know what we're talking about, but it was a very gentle um, get-to-know-Caroline Mulrooney event. Um, a lot of it was spent talking about her father, and while she uh, went to great lengths to say, I'm Caroline and I stand on my own, she talked about uh, conversations she had with her father about this. Um, she talked about you know being nine when he ran for the leadership, 19 when he left, dating having Mounties um, uh, follow her around, uh, talking politics at the uh, family dinner table. And she said at one point, I believe that if you, you know, if your parents are doctors, you talk medicine at the dinner table. If your parents are in uh, politics, you talk politics. So she's trying to have it both ways. She's, she seems to be trying to distance herself from the, um, the, the, the huge shadow of her father and saying that she is a, a woman in her own right, which I'm sure is true. But on the other hand, she was playing the Mulroney pedigree uh, in that in that um, uh, event the other night, at least in, in my view. And and Bill, there's another difference too when you talk about you know the Trudeau legacy and so on. Brian Mulroney is is uh, unlike Pierre Trudeau, uh, is very much uh, alive and well, and still very much in the uh, political game. He's holding a fundraising for his daughter uh, next week. Uh, we talked about the NAFTA involvement. Um, he he's he pops up here and there. He's certainly not um, gone to pasture. So you're talking no. about somebody who is actually 
obviously going to play a role in this campaign by talking to and advising his daughter. Well, and one of the reasons for that, of course, is because the the rather unusual relationship he has with Justin Trudeau, uh, which obviously yep. is through Ben, his son, and and Justin Trudeau, who who were friends and are still very good friends. But who would have thought that uh, that the the phoenix rising from the ashes here is going to be because of his affiliation or his work with the liberal government uh, after he was shunned by the conservative government? Uh, just goes to the to the point that politics uh, is very very unpredictable. You just never know where people are going to turn up or why. I actually thought that was a master stroke by Trudeau to bring uh, oh, yeah. Rooney into the tent. Uh, not only does he obviously have the expertise, he's got he still has uh, uh, amazing contacts south of the border. Uh, he, well, he's still he down there a lot of the time. I mean, he and Trump are, are kind of neighbors, aren't they, in West Palm Beach? Yeah, I know. I talked to um, uh, Brian Mulroney shortly after he came back from uh, Mar-a-Lago when he was talking, yeah. uh, when he was there with, with Trump. Uh, and talk, we, we talked about trade, but we were, he was also uh, spending a lot of time talking to me about trying to assuage any concerns that, um, uh, that uh, Canadians might have uh, uh, about Trump. And I said, I said to him at one point, you know, I think people, this is quite a while ago, people are worried he's going to start a, a nuclear war with North Korea on Twitter. And, of course, Mulroney gave me the whole, whole, whole baritone, don't worry about that kind of thing. So, you know, he's playing a role, and, and, and he's playing a, a, a very active role in, in the uh, ongoing uh, NAFTA soap opera. And that's part of the Trudeau strategy where he brought onto his advisory council people, uh, prominent people from uh, all three political parties, and, and he... And he involved Mulroney, and Mulroney was only too happy to do it. So, you know, when you talk about a legacy, it's a legacy that's still unfolding before our eyes. And maybe rejuvenated now because of his work yep. on, after, on, on the file, anyway. Yes. Interesting. It's a great piece. Uh, check it out in the Toronto Star today. You can go online and do it. Uh, Tim, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks for calling, Bill. Good to talk to you again. You get you. We'll talk again soon. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well... The Ontario government is about to introduce a bill that will allow it to retaliate against any state that adopts Buy American provisions. Then, we are told, it plans to start a national conversation with other provinces about measures to punish new cases of procurement protectionism. Uh, This in light, of course, of the NAFTA negotiations, stalled NAFTA negotiations, but also the way that uh, some states are uh, starting to craft some of their legislation right now. Uh, let's face it, uh, the economy and economic growth is what everybody is concerned about these days. And uh, maybe there was an inevitability to this because of some of the rhetoric that's going on about uh, America first and trade barriers and things of this nature. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Bridget Matheson, director of the Canada-U.S. Cross-Border Business Affairs with Errant Fox LLP Law Firm, and always a welcome guest. Bridget, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, thank you very much. Was this kind of a bombast and going back and forth inevitable because of the, of the, of the, the America First and the trade barriers and, and the, the sorts of, of talk that we've had through the NAFTA negotiations? Yeah, I, uh, I, I would agree with that. It's sort of a, a rising uh, concern, uh, not only among uh, Canadian premiers, of course, uh, but, uh, you know, industry in, uh, in Canada, and I would point out... Uh, some industry representatives and sectors here in the United States, including the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. A lot of people are worried about uh, 
the uh, the NAFTA procurement provisions. Well, let's talk a little bit about those, and uh, well, by no means can we actually define those, because I don't think anybody around the table can do that. <laughs> uh, I could ask Lighthizer the same thing, and he wouldn't have an answer, neither would Christia Freeland, uh, but that's because that's still up in the air. But but is, is this a, a reaction to this? Is this a defense mechanism by some of the, uh, the neighboring states right now to say we better watch our backs? Well, um, uh, it could be. Uh, by America at the uh, state level has been uh, alive and well pretty much well by America has been around for many many years as you know but it was certainly uh, uh, made worse and amplified uh, back in uh, 2007 2008 with the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act mm-hmm. you will recall sure. call under the yeah under the Obama administration in res- uh, response to the uh, economic downfall and uh, uh, that created a expanded U.S. domestic content requirements for a number of U.S. federal agencies and therefore procurement projects. And it had an awful lot of uh, money attached to it, a huge price tag attached to it. So a lot of opportunity there that uh, might have been and was missed out by Canadian Canadian companies. So this uh, bubble of concern and this uh, bombast uh, is not new. Uh, but as you said, Bill, what's new, of course, is that we are now entering into the NAFTA negotiations and government procurement is on the table again. But And you're absolutely right. I mean, this started during the recovery, the U.S. and the Canadian recovery. Uh, and there were some very contentious points uh, about uh, the auto sector, about uh, about lumber, yep. about beef imports, uh, and a number of different things. But at that time, uh, they seemed to find... I don't know if middle ground is the right thing, but at least some 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 quasi compromise positions mm-hmm. uh, about uh, where things were built, and and one of the reasons, and I guess one of the contributing factors in this whole thing, Bridget, as you and I have talked about in the past, is a, an awful lot of these quote unquote Canadian companies are really just uh, affiliates of U.S. companies, and and that really kind of blurs the line. It does blur the line, and uh, uh, bec- not to get too technical over this um, uh, in this conversation over this interview, but. Uh, uh, the biomedical requirements here in the United States um, are primarily a requirement to build in the United States. It's a U.S. domestic component, uh, manufactured, assembled requirement uh, 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 under biomedical laws. And, and so even uh, companies in Canada who are U.S. affiliates um, have had to change their production line to make sure that whatever product they sell to a U.S. government procurement project um, is made from their plants in the United States. So it hurts a number of interests uh, in Canada, including U.S. Uh, multinationals. Yeah, and, and that was part of the problem, uh, especially with some of the infrastructure programs that the Correct. Obama administration uh, decided to get involved with uh, during their recovery. And, and, and steel, which was That's very right. obviously very concerning to us here in the Hamilton area, yes. uh, was uh, was right in the, in the, the crosshairs because of that. And, of course, we had U.S. steel at the time. We thought, well, why can't we? And and, and they seem to find some middle ground. But is that stuff all out the window now with the negotiations that are ongoing? Um, I wouldn't say they're out of the window. I think where we are on the NAFTA talks is uh, uh, just a couple of things. Uh, we had round six in Montreal, uh, round seven coming up in Mexico City, I think, in uh, end of February. Yeah. Um, now, what has happened in between those two dates? Well, uh, Gov- uh, sorry, President Trump has returned from Davos. USTR Robert Lighthizer was with him at Davos. Um, uh, he, uh, the president, chose that opportunity to not. 
speak about uh, the possibility of withdrawing from the NAFTA or any other free trade agreement. He could have said that. He did not. The State of the Union address uh, also happened in recent days. He did not choose that opportunity to announce a withdrawal from the NAFTA, So, uh, and he could have. There was an awful lot of rumor that that was going to be the case. That did not happen. So now I think that with those two out of the way and in the backdrop, I think Robert Lighthizer, by all accounts, has now started to zero in personally on the trade negotiations. He's on the Hill today, uh, uh, briefing for the first time U.S. congressional leaders on the NAFTA negotiations. And uh, uh, so I think uh, round six, the U.S. negotiating team will have clearer objectives and clear negotiating flexibility and authority. Um, and I think these talks are going to be, uh, be more productive than the let's wait and see attitude uh, that we've seen in the past rounds. Now, what does that mean? I think for Ottawa and probably for the Ontario Premier, uh, the current U.S. proposal on government procurement, which is rather um, uh, 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 constraining, uh, is, continues to be a poison pill. And so we do not know yet what uh, uh, the U.S. will counter-propose or how they will amend it. But uh, these are critical times. But I would not say the NAFTA talks are dead yet, nor are they stalled. Well, well, I, in, I guess I'm cautiously optimistic. But a lot of people seem to be these days, Bridget. I mean, even yeah. the Premier herself, Premier Wynne was in Washington talking with congressional leaders, and she said uh, that she was more optimistic than she was two months ago. Uh, based on the conversations that she had, yet she had, mm-hmm. but she finishes her statement by saying, "But uh, you know, we're going to introduce this legislation nonetheless." And and I understand where this is coming from. There's, uh, there's some political posturing that's going on here because the New York State Legislature is is talking about an infrastructure bill right now that adopts the the America First policy. So I mean, this is a, yeah. really a response to that, isn't it? Uh, uh, that that is absolutely correct, and uh, uh, there's federal procurement, and then there's state procurement, and then there's municipality procurement. And we, I think, your uh, listeners would uh, be somewhat uh, relieved, at least heartened, by the fact that uh, uh, apart from the NAFTA, Canada and the United States are still signatories to the government procurement agreement under the World uh, Trade Organization, uh, and so there are still U.S trade obligations under that agreement that uh, pr- will protect Canadians' uh, access to the U.S. federal procurement market, including that at the state level for many, many states, not all of them. Uh, so uh, uh, these are not traditional negotiations under the NAFTA. This is a very unpredictable administration, and therefore uh, the negotiating team is probably receiving um, um, uh, unclear, if not confusing, instructions from the White House. And uh, so I think the uh, the personal attention going forward by Robert Lighthizer at least will bring clarity. But so far, uh, I don't think the Ottawa or Mexico can accept what the U.S. has on the table on procurement. And conversely, what Mr. Lighthizer said is they feel uh, that Canada is being rather inflexible about stuff, uh, which, which causes the consternation. Yet at the same time, uh, we're told that there's a lot of other uh, subsections of this that, that are finding some common ground on this. So uh, I don't know where they're going to go on this. It's it's rather puzzling at this stage. But the concern, of course, so you look at this for the macro level, that Canada-U.S. relationships, but 
I mean, here in the Northeast, I mean, our, our concern, obviously, is, is one of the major trade corridors in North America, which runs right along the Great Lakes and down into the Northeast, which is a huge market. And, and of course, we're trying to gear our transportation systems and a number of other things here on this side of the border to be able to feed into that market. And if all of a sudden barriers go up, there's a, a great deal of concern about what's going on. But that's not new either, is it? No, it's not. And, um, you know, I was just uh, uh, thinking uh, when you called uh, for this interview, um, uh, Buy America has been a political darling here in the United States for many, many years, and it enjoys bipartisan support, uh, even from members, congressional members who are close to the the northern border, to the Canada-U.S. border. Uh, And um, every campaign season... Uh, every trade negotiation, the White House will always get letters of support for stricter enforcement of current Buy American requirements or an expansion of Buy American requirements. That was reflected uh, in April of 2017 with one of the first executive orders that uh, the president signed um, uh, asking for a report on Buy America. And so uh, the embassy in Can- of Canada here in Washington, and 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 the premier's offices across the United across Canada, uh, have remained very vigilant whenever one of these pieces of legislation or action pops up. And um, I don't think it's going to go away. I think it's a battle that we're going to be fighting for for a number of years. I want to get back to the politics for a second here because there's a there's a a subplot that's going on here, and this is, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that uh, there's an election coming up here in Ontario in the, yes. in the spring, of course, on June 7th, uh, and, and the government, of course, is challenged, as all incumbencies are in, in this situation. Uh, so there's uh, there's the opportunity here for the Premier to, to try to make a poli- little political hay. So she makes this stand that says that we're going to fight back and we're going to introduce this, this, uh, this legislation right now that's going to defend us. Yet the the reality here is that the existing trade laws between New York State and the province of Ontario are are very restrictive about what goods are allowed across here. In other words, a lot of the stuff that she's talking about instituting are already in place. Well, I can't. I'm sorry, I just can't speak to that. Um, uh, and especially given that it's a uh, election season in Ontario, um, I certainly wouldn't want to get involved in um, Ontario politics uh, here from Washington D.C. That's hardly my place. But uh, uh, suffice to say that many, many premiers, including the Premier of Ontario, has for a number of uh, years, and especially in the last few months, this uh, 2017 and 2018, have engaged their U.S. counterparts, including New York, and uh, on the subject of state Buy America, Hire America policies. And some have seen success. And uh, I think it is incumbent on every Canadian policy leader or political leader to uh, to keep up with that battle. Uh, it is, just, as I said, it's just not going away. And they will put those those policies are going to pop up, and uh, we need to handle them very strategically. Yeah, I just know that uh, when we explored this after we we heard the announcement from the premier here, the, the pro announcement, I guess. Uh, a number of trade experts uh, on Bay Street in Toronto suggested that uh, that Ontario's procurement already has numerous limits to the competition and is maybe far more protectionist than a lot of people advertise. And uh, So I don't know how much wiggle room there actually is to do these sorts of things. I, I guess one of the overriding questions, though, if it should come to that stage, though, Bridget, I mean, does anybody really win if there's a trade war? Oh, what an interesting question and what exactly, what um, the right question at the right time. Yeah, you know, uh, 
we and you and I have talked about this for many many times now. This uncertainty and this unpredictability is ju- dampens um, business, and it dampens uh, transactional business, and it dampens long-term strategy of business decisions. And um, the world has changed dramatically over the years, and, and this transactional approach, this mercantilist approach to government policy, including by America, uh, doesn't take into account take into account um, how businesses have uh, have changed. I mean, you uh, you cited an excellent example at the top of this conversation about U.S. Uh, Canadian operations of U.S. multinationals. You know that doesn't factor into the conversation here in Washington about Buy America. It just doesn't, and it's so critical. And uh, uh, I think uh, multinationals and uh, uh, other business leaders here in the United States are are starting to raise that uh, perspective in the current NAFTA round. I think that's why the U.S. Chamber of Commerce came out with a strong uh, statement that the U.S. proposal would be a quote-unquote disaster. So hopefully um, a more rational conversation will uh, will take place during the NAFTA round six. I'm just wondering about, about the, uh, for instance, we've got one going on right here in Canada now. It's an interprovincial situation between the provinces of British Columbia and Alberta, and it has to do with pipelines. And, and BC is saying, well, we may restrict the, the, the construction and the use of those pipelines to get the, your product uh, out to the coast. And Alberta now has responded and said, well, guess what? We're not going to allow the import of your wine in here anymore. And you figure, is there an adult in the room anywhere that can really settle this? It does get a little childish after a while. Well, <laughs> I, w- I want to ask you to count on, I, 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 to, to comment on the specifics, but I mean yeah. that that kind of tit for tat is how this usually degenerates, and and it I just that's why I asked the question. I don't know that anybody actually wins on these situations. That's right, but you know, uh, in these kind of situations, uh, there are winners and losers, and uh, I think uh, that's one of the reasons why, on trade policy, a lot of CEOs and a lot of uh, office of chief counsels in companies are starting to take into consideration the risk factors of international trade policy. If you're a publicly traded uh, uh, company here in the United States, you have to file SEC reports, and probably likewise in uh, Canada um, um, with Ottawa. And those SEC reports, you need to identify outstanding risks. And uh, uh, in the recent years, I'm starting to see an awful lot more of these SEC reports identifying the unpredictability of international trade as a corporate risk. And so now we're seeing board of directors, we're seeing investment communities, the banking community, paying more and more attention to international trade risk. And that's what I think has become the outcome of uh, these kinds of lobbying one ball to the other efforts to protect a quote-unquote domestic interest. I think uh, hopefully a uh, more informed conversation will take place. But is is the overriding concern here, and maybe the overriding mistake we're all making, is that we're trying to apply 19th century trade policies to the 21st century economy? I think that's a great way of putting it, frankly. And uh, when uh, uh, the three uh, capitals agreed to quote-unquote modernize the NAFTA, that was certainly what uh, most people were hoping for as an objective. I, I mean, Teddy Kennedy was, or Teddy Roosevelt rather, was was vilified in in some circles and praised in others for reciprocity. And I don't know if we've moved beyond that yet. Right, and so the uh, the the concept of and reciprocity, that was a few years ago. That's right. <laughs> uh, 
the concept of reciprocity, of course, uh, is uh, it's germane to the government procurement talks, um, and so is the concept of quote unquote national treatment in uh, uh, in trade lingo. Uh, but uh, the appendices and side agreements uh, and the exceptions and the waivers uh, uh, certainly do water these down. Well, and, and no matter what happens between Ontario and New York State or any other provinces and states, uh, the big dog in this hunt, obviously, is, is what's going on with the NAFTA negotiations, yes. which it really overrides just about everything here. That's right. That's right. They are very, very critical. And uh, uh, I once again, I will tell you, I think... Uh, uh, by all accounts here in the United States, uh, many uh, uh, folks here view the Canadian negotiating team as the A-team. Um, so uh, I, I hope that your listeners are at least comforted by that. Uh, it's an aggressive uh, set of negotiations, and it's an aggressive calendar. And uh, uh, But the outcome will be extremely important for, uh, for uh, the North American manufacturing platform. Uh, absolutely. And on that note, we'll uh, have to wrap it up. Always a pleasure, Bridget. Thank you so much for the time today. Great talking with you. Not at all, sir. Thank you. Take care. Bridget Matheson, of course, Director of the Canada-U.S. Cross-Border Business Affairs with uh, Aaron Fox uh, Law Firm down in Washington, D.C. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.